You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode 16. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the CSP Podcast. So glad to have you today. I'm Jeff Steppen, and we are now in the year 2015. It's been one year since I launched the podcast. I'm hoping to have more episodes this year. Uh, For those of you who are newer listeners, I hope you go back and check out some of the earlier ones, although I have to say I I would like to think that it's getting better all the time. Um, Today on the show, Marge Blanc. Um, Now, before you all start accusing me of turning this into the Marge Blanc show. Let me just uh, back up here. For those of you who have not heard episodes number six and seven, please go back and take a look at those. That is, if you work with the pediatric population and if a lot of that caseload uh, just happens to include kids on the autism spectrum, those episodes are gold. Um, not just Not because of me, because of the content. Um, Marge Blanc, I saw her originally November 2013 at ASHA. I've gotten to know her and I'm getting to know her better all the time. I had some follow-up questions of those first episodes, episodes six and seven, if you'll recall, of just jumping into what her natural language acquisition process was like. And now I have all these, all sorts of questions since I'm really starting to embrace the way Marge uh, sees a lot of our uh, a lot of our kids, and I'm trying to implement what she's doing um, in my world as well. So, purpose of today's episode is to ask a lot of the questions that you all probably would have or are having yourselves if you read Marge's book, if you embrace her view of of our kids. And this is a long episode. Um, unlike episodes six and seven, I decided not to break this up. It's about an hour and a half, and I figured that for those of you who need to, you'll just listen to it in chunks. Um, We get pretty heavy into the uh, material today, but I really feel, and especially towards the latter half of the podcast, are some really good, useful case examples from my own practice, uh, both in the public schools and as well as uh, privately, uh, one particular boy who I see. Um, So I think there's a lot of valuable uh, information and insights that Marge has here. So please, if you are interested, listen to the entire thing. Listen to it in chunks if you need to. And more importantly, if you are interested in the work that Marge is doing and you really want to contribute and you have an idea or something ticking in your head, please don't hesitate to email either Marge or myself. We want to hear stories. We want to hear your input because... Marge's application, I guess, of NLA occurs within her world, which is very specific and different from my world, working in the schools and uh, you know part-time private clinic. And everyone's experiences are going to be different, and we want to hear what you have to say. So please, please, please chime in. Um, with that, I'm going to stop talking, and we're going to jump right into this interview. I'll have a couple of words to say at the end, so please stay tuned. Here it is. What we did, just to let the audience know, I, I sent you a, a list of some topic areas that I wanted to cover, but we were just talking before I hit the record button about services in different environments, and I work in a school, and we were talking about how IEP goals are not always you know, aligned with uh, language developments, and 
what we really need to see. And so I guess, you know, the way I've seen it since I've met you and really discovered your work is that I feel like that natural language progression really has to be addressed head on. Or otherwise, we're just going to kind of be spinning our wheels as far as a lot of these academic goals go, because, you know, language is part of everything. I mean, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Now, uh, part of the difficulty, of course, is what is written down um, on an IEP as a goal and what a particular SLP has in his or her mind as we are addressing that goal. And I think in some ways, we may not get pure language development goals written in our IEPs unless there is a social pragmatic uh, component of it. But I think that doesn't change how we as professionals in speech and language um, go about setting up our um, therapy um, and our assessments for kids. Um, Because even if a particular goal is um, very much academic rooted and maybe having um, a child be able to participate in a classroom situation, that doesn't change what we know in our heads. And I think that part of what has become um, very difficult, I think, for SLPs is that so many other folks in a child's life have taken the onus on themselves to structure the child's life. Mm -hmm. And like you say, if we don't have language development as part of at least our mindset as we go about looking at goals, whether they're written by us or somebody else, if we don't have language development in our minds as we approach those goals, then we can be absolutely assured, like you say, nobody will. And so I think, you know, I often think about how to balance um, an IEP goal, let us say, that, you know, um, has a child making a choice. And maybe in the IEP um, goal itself, it, 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 it includes the wording that the child is, quote, supposed to say. I mean, let's say if it's a PECS kind of a thing or something else. And let's just say that the sentence pattern that's written for the child was written with all good intentions, you know, with the, you know, the, the ever-present, I want X, please. Mm-hmm. And we as SLPs are thinking, well, that's not bad if, in fact, the child is ready for that language um, pattern. And even if we aren't even looking at an LA and echolalia and is the child ready for that level of generative grammar, even short of that, we as SLPs, I think, like you're suggesting, always need to keep our language development hat on because if the child is at the stage of, let's just say, one word, making one word choices, you know, the the conventional not so great wisdom is often that we jump from single words to I want X, please, only because that is, you know, the quick fix, if you will, for how the child is going to sound like his peers. But like you're suggesting, has absolutely nothing to do with language development. I mean, we in our um, profession have enough history with what kids do at the two-word combination level to know that jumping to something that has grammar in it is actually out of place for the child and isn't going to help for language development. 
Now, the other issue, I think, is even bigger than the one you're talking about. And that is that unless you know deep in your heart that this child is capable of language development, there's not even going to be that in anyone's mind. And unfortunately, SLPs, I think, have gone through this long, I'm going to say it feels like 20-year history of having less and less direct influence on a program that it's set up for a child with autism. And of course, it's not just kids with autism who use echolalia as the first step of language development, but those are the kids who are typically intelligible enough and old enough that their echolalia catches the ear of people. And so there are so many professionals and so many others who have already deemed this child, not by saying so necessarily, but by almost neglect, have deemed this child not capable of language development. So as we step into the picture and say, oh, but wait, 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 this child is capable of language development, we're going to get a whole raft of naysayers because the first thing is, well, he's older than six and we all know that the child isn't capable uh, older than six. Well, that's something we need to address. Um, then the uh, next issue will be, um, but the child has so many issues with, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, you know, Mm -hmm. socializing, being with other people, um, having communicative intents that are beyond requesting, you name it. And somebody has probably said that about virtually every child that we see on our caseload. So we're going to meet with all kinds of naysayers. So I think that a lot of the onus, unfortunately, for now, until we have, you know, a a great plurality of, of, quote, us, you know, regaining our place with kids who happen to have an autism spectrum label, a lot of it's going to have to happen in our heads. In that conversation I had with the parent and, of course, with the teacher and the team, you know, members who were there, um, you know, I, I definitely, I, I come at it with what I hope is a non-judgmental, uh, you know, lens on. And I just acknowledge, of course, that there are, there are differences and that, you know, this is where I come from, but that I respect other, other professionals' input into the process and that it's just something that we're going to have an ongoing discussion about. Um, and kind of just leave it at that. And I think the parent walked away satisfied, and it's just something that's going to, you know, a slow evolution, if you will. Right. Look at it. And I think, too, though, you bring up a good point, um, and that is that, you know, not all echolalia is exactly the same. And are is there some echolalia that does serve a self-regulatory function for a child? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that this... Um, uh, blog about, um, let's see, her name is Amethyst and it's called Ask an Autistic. Mm-hmm. And she talks about all the reasons that she, as a person with autism who has good language herself, why such a person would use echolalia to self-regulate. 
And obviously, you know, the, the term STEM, you know, sticks with us and probably will forever. But I mean, we all know that the OTs would say, anytime you're tempted to use the word STEM, substitute the word self-regulation. Mm. And, you know, there are others who would say, you could even use, this is a parent talking here, um, who, who has a wonderful blog and um, her, her daughter is now involved in this blog, but she would call it self-care mm-hmm. and self-comforting. And so in the sense of, quote, STEM, um, you know, it, it's become kind of, you know, among people with autism, um, the adults who are talking about such things and writing blogs, it's become kind of a pejorative term. And I think for OTs, it's been fairly pejorative all along. So, but still, going back to the point that this psychologist was making, um, almost to say that echolalia is something that doesn't have communicative value. And so I think that my tendency often is to acknowledge to anyone who's questioning echolalia um, that some of it is self-calming. I mean, certainly when I walk into a strange place, um, like, I mean, I will tell you quite frankly, the big grocery store next door, Whitman's, I talk to myself the whole time mm-hmm. um, just to figure out where the, chi- where the chips are <laughs> because yeah. you can get lost in there so easily. It's like, I'm looking for chips. I'm looking for chips. Don't sell me these other things, you know? Yeah. And so um, my own self-talk with my very redundant phrase that I'm echoing from myself because I've got my little list of things that I'm going to go buy, but that's all I'm doing mm-hmm. is keeping myself regulated so that I can go about handling this myriad, uh, you know, input place. So does some echolalia serve the function of self-regulation? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so when when people are new to the subject of, as you correctly said earlier, delayed echolalia, I think that's the place that um, we, SLPs and others who care about kids' language development, need to make sure we have looked, and that is which of the utterances are of the type that one could say are just for self-regulation. And I don't mean to say just, that's not fair to even say. I mean, mm-hmm. self-regulation, you know, is the basis of how any of us can do what it is that we intend to do that's a little out of our comfort zone. So um, if a an utterance or a sound, um, something, you know, that the child utters is for self-regulation, we're not necessarily going to look at that particular utterance to say that's going to be the foundation for some kind of amazing language development. We're going to look at the stuff that kids echo later. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be hours later, but it's something that you can tell is in their heads. It's really truly in their heads. And they're saying it at a time when if we don't panic and wonder, ooh, is the child, you know, stimming again? And we sit back for just a moment and say, let's not judge it before we've evaluated it. Mm -hmm. Let's do our assessment and see if it fits with anything. And of course, we can't always do that ourselves or, you know, hardly ever can we totally do that by ourselves. We need to know where the language came from and what it meant to the child when he first 
uttered it when he first echoed it. So that's where obviously the parents come in. And and as I was listening to you in thinking about your this particular child and the school team, the parent is the one who's going to know. I mean, not I'm not saying that every parent always knows, you know, day one, but their their learning curve is probably faster than the rest of us because they just like the parents whose children are out in the sandbox playing, but they're too young to be intelligible, parents hear these utterances. They've, they've figured out where they come from. They know what it means, you know, from the source where the child first derived it. And they have, once we tell them that delayed echolalia is, you know, meaningful, and it's stuff that we need to listen to and figure out what the intention is. So, but again, I, I guess I think it makes sense for all of us as SLPs and, and people who care about the child, yes, but also care about our teams and care mm-hmm. about everybody, as you say, being educated on the things that we know about, but also having something to um, offer that may be something different from what we ourselves might might think of. But it, it, I think it makes sense for us to know, are we talking about immediate echolalia? That Amethyst is saying, these are ways I can buy time. I can echo what's going on around me and buy a little time. I can take the pressure off. So it's self-regulating there. Is it something that the child repeats again and again and again and again all day long to keep himself from having to listen to all the, the noise in the hallway? Okay, self-regulation. Or is it something that the child is saying, with some specificity that the child isn't telling us. He's not pointing. We know that. He's not going to point. But we can determine the specificity of it. Mm -hmm. So much detective work. (laughs) It's a lot of, you know, it makes me think about, you're talking about the parents' uh, input, how much they they figure things out much quicker than us because they're with them all the time and they've known forever. And one of the you know the challenges of course working in a school is that often i'm flying blind or i have to make assumptions that may or may not pan out to be true and then of course when the conferences come i jump on now tell me what he's watching at home these days what's he saying at home what does this mean what do you think that means and that's what that's what my uh you know i just when i get the parents now i'm like I'll, i'm all i'm all over it i'm just trying to figure out everything i can because uh you know fortunately we don't have the luxury of you know i work in a district that has a lot of low income you know dual working parents and don't have the time often to uh, you know get back if you were to ask them questions and so you have to wait till these moments come where you can just unload and say okay what does that mean what does this mean so you know that definitely uh, that's a challenge we have here in the school um can i turn the tables and ask yeah, you how parents feel about that what kinds of responses have you gotten you mean just in terms of uh, my, the approach now? Of, of when you say to them, well, where, what about that utterance? Do you know where that came from? Do you know what this child might mean by that? When does he say that? Well, I've had well, a variety of responses. I, I'm thinking of one boy in particular who, um, whose parents, when they came in recently for a conference, I think, was it just his, we just had, no, 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 it was, yeah, it was during the, over, just before winter break. And uh, the father was particularly concerned about this boy's delayed echolalia. He thought it was something that we need to, replace and he's not using it from any uh, any place of a behavioralist i mean they don't they get no as far as i know they get no outside therapy uh it was for it was his concern he, he talks about taking uh his son to target and his tar- and his son uh very loudly reciting lines from thomas the tank engine or something like else 
And I, you know, I asked him, do you think he means anything when he's saying those lines? Is he pointing, is he looking at something as he's saying it? And of course he's, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I was trying to just sort of gently lead him into, you know, getting to that place where maybe he thinks it is, you know, that there's some value because I certainly have seen value. Now, is there, are there plenty of times where he's self-regulating? Absolutely. But I've also seen in play that he's using a lot of these gestalts in a very directed way, sometimes directly to his partner, sometimes just for himself, but in a very directive way. Um, so I've seen that and, you know, gently sort of leading this parent to believe that there's some, there's a lot of value and that we have to uh, respect that. Um, and, then I, and then I've seen another parents who uh, this boy is, is getting is very close to using a lot of stage four. Uh, he's getting there and his mom is just so thrilled. And so when I kind of talk to her about your work and, you know, she's just thrilled because she's seen progress anyway. And it makes sense to her because she's seen point A to, to D. I mean, she's seen the progression. Uh, two years ago when I started with this boy, it was just a lot of re just repetitive gestalts. It's always, look, look, look. He had some word isolations and then, you know, a lot of things that would just come right out of your book, like back off. You know, when he and he and he got mad very often. But anyway, well, that's wonderful. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, um, with a parent who is being essentially driven crazy by the loud Thomas um, scripts in the store, you know, that is that is a tough one, mm -hmm. you know, to address directly with a parent about what what there might be meaningful there. Um, now, this is not necessarily the answer for everyone, but um, one of the um, seminars that I did this last fall um, was um, I thought the, the takeaway lesson that one uh, participant um, voiced was excellent, and that was she said that she was the autism consultant for her group of schools, and she said that what she was going to do was just have, as part of the intake process, have every parent make a spontaneous language home video. Mm. And she said, everybody's got an iPad. They could do this. This would be something that would be easy for people to do if she just instituted it across the board. Now, that doesn't take care of the target visits, um, and certainly I've been to those kinds of stores with one of my long-term buddies who moves from, you know, very quiet, uh, language that he might say to me in the car, you know, some of which has, um, some gestalt quality, some of which is very nicely mitigated, some of which is quite self-generated. And the minute we walk into, you know, the giant savers store with all of the echoing sound and the potential for a baby crying, you know, he moves straight into a dialogue that comes out of, um, some dinosaur movie or another where he can command the kind of power that he deems he needs to withstand this assault, mm -hmm. you know, which brings up obviously another issue, but it, this is a little off topic in terms of language development and self-regulation. But for this boy, my buddy, um, it's it is such an insult and assault to his senses going in a store um, and with the potential of 
you know, two little kids fighting or a baby crying or something like that, it, it ruins his day, his week. Mm -hmm. And so for him to yell, um, under those conditions is for him, um, only self-defense and not something that he deems would be hurtful to someone else because he's already been hurt by them just by walking in the store. Yeah. So anyway, just that's being there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to, you know, cause we have so much to get to, <laughs> I wanted to switch uh, gears a little bit. You know, one of the things I emailed you about is that whole hypothesis thing about PEX and ABA. And I'm just wondering, so one, I'll just, maybe I'll just kind of read this. Um, I sort of had this, especially, you know, I, I've been thinking not just because of the work that you do, but I had this, uh, sort of working hypothesis about, let's just talk about PECs, for instance, because I've, I've been to the PECs training and I, you know, I was a big believer in it for a time. And I want to give it its, its due props because PECs has helped a lot of kids. There's no doubt about it. And I don't want, I'm not here to, to say A versus B. But one of the things, one of my sort of theories about PECs, especially looking through the prism of natural language development, is that there are always going to be a subset of kids who might go through PECs, or it could be verbal behavior, who are taught, you know, the I want X. And there are going to be those kids who sort of go through that, no longer need PECs, become verbal language users, and learn on their own to mitigate, to break down, and then learn a new grammar, and they just become relatively independent. Now, my take on this, and this is, you know, Nobody in here, nobody in the PEX world is going to say, come on, say that our goal is to get kids talking. They don't say that, but of course, that's what we're all, you know, hopefully uh, thinking for a lot of the kids down the road that they don't need PEX and that they just become verbal. And this is sort of the kickstarting that communication. But my feeling is that just like the early, the original LOVA studies, you know, what they've, and you talk about this in your book, the kids who tended to do well with ABA were the kids who did not have severe symptoms had higher IQs. Um, and so my feeling is that there's going to be that probably that subset of kids who, and especially maybe 10, 15 years ago, the kids who had like those PDD labels, they weren't sure if they had full, you know, autism in that nomenclature. And those kids probably did well enough that they didn't need that much support or guidance, but they need that little kick and they did okay. Um, I'm rambling here, but I'm just wondering what you think about that. I mean, there's, are there going to be a, a group of kids who will just sort of get it, um, even if they're sort of let down this behavioral, like, here's what I want you to say, and then they'll just figure it out themselves? Well, yeah, that's, that's a great question, because in a sense, it just speaks to um, our need to be absolutely open-minded as we look at kids. I mean, really, you, I mean you've said it all in a sense, is that there is no formula. I mean, we might have all the evidence-based therapies, you know, at our fingertips, and yet we have to figure out which one of those evidence-based therapies are mm -hmm. we going to even consider for yeah. this particular child. And I think that if we keep in mind the premise that we first do no harm, that we want in our minds to not buy into any particular uh, protocol. Um, I mean, even even as benign and 
wonderful as PECS is, that we don't want to buy into every bit of the the premises of it for this particular child because it may or may not match what it is that he needs. Um, and so if we think of, you know, as you say, natural language development as being absolutely natural. And for some kids, they're going to do it in their head, you know, no matter what we do wrong, you know, no matter what we do right, no matter what we do wrong, then, you know, we're describing the kids typically who don't have a whole lot of sensory motor issues, Mm -hmm. you know, now that's not, that's not that, you know, we can't make any blanket statements about virtually anybody because, you know, you think of all the kids that we've dubbed quote nonverbal who turn out to have plenty of language inside their heads, but no means of expressing it until they get to some form of, of typing or letter pointing. And we say, oh, if we take the term verbal as meaning words and language, they were verbal all along. They just weren't speaking or speaking intelligibly or speaking reliably. So I think that the premise of presuming competence, you know, kind of a buzzword, buzz phrase, but still obviously valid, and the do no harm. And if we do a little bit of pecs, and it it brings together an interaction pattern that maybe we didn't know that the child was necessarily even interested in if his body language didn't include eye contact pointing you know um the proxim uh, you know the being proximal to the situation you know w- we don't know there's just so much we don't know about a little kid mm-hmm. and we look for the signs that we not just SLPs but you know all adults are looking for to say oh he's interested in interaction oh he wants to be in a communicative of uh, communicative exchange with us and we don't we don't know we we think it doesn't look like he does but we don't know we don't know what's in his head and so when there is a mechanism let's just say at the at the basic level let's just say there is a to use the the terminology of a joint referent and an exchange maybe for some kids, all we needed was some kind of a mechanism to say, oh, you don't seem to point naturally, but how about this? Can you hold this card in your hand? Can you hand it to me? Can you do something that's a bit more tangible than a distal point? Mm-hmm. You know, so, so if something kickstarts what we want, we don't actually know what it was about that for a particular child that was the Kickstarter. And like you're suggesting, though, what, what, what your question was more about, though, was about the language itself. Like if you have um, the expectation, the goal that a child is going to say, I want, you know, chips, is that necessarily going to kickstart, you know, language development? Well, like you're suggesting, probably not. It's probably going on in his head anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, you could say for any child, why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't language development be going on in their heads? And I think what we're going to find as we get a little bit better and more sophisticated over time here is we're going to find language developments going on in, you know, 85, 95% of our kids. Um, but we just don't have a way to know it. And if a child is able to express something, to 
a partner who and and convince them that they're actually smart or actually interested or actually potentially you know that they're vocal or that they're verbal or whatever it is that wasn't you know really obvious if we give them some means regardless of what it is to say yeah i care i i like stuff i want to talk to you i want to be with you i have things that i really want to say and thanks for giving me some mechanism for for convincing you of that mm-hmm. you know and maybe it didn't do anything in their head except give them the assurance they had a partner yeah yeah you know, you said something uh, earlier just about um you know this buffet of choices that parents have about you know autism treatments and you know what fits for your you know particular child and it you know one of the questions that I had would uh, was about evidence-based practice you know big buzzword in um, speech pathology these days worldwide um, so you talk about a little bit about uh, EBP in your book and I'll let me just tell you one of my concerns about it and I think you you probably agree with this is that I think EBP is a great thing, but I think what happens, and I actually made the same mistake last year. I don't know if you remember when I originally emailed you some questions about, you know, what is, I think I've, I probably mm-hmm. asked a very simplistic, right. like, what is the evidence for NLA? Okay. Mm-hmm. And looking back, it re- really was the wrong question to ask. And uh, I, I think one of the problems that we have with a question like that, it, you can even take that, you know, for instance, like, let's talk about PECs. Let's go back to that. And I'm not picking up PECs, but you can... You can ask a very well, well you can have a really well designed uh, uh, study saying, you know, it, the, where the dependent variable is going to be just requesting. And you can show some great, you know, pivotal response training has hundreds of studies, right? They've all replicated. And, and again, I'm not picking on PRT, they've done some great work. But here is, this is where the rub is is that you can have those great results, but what do they mean in the, in the broader context? And I've been saying to, um, just as another little quick tangent, I'll let you talk. <laughs> I've been saying to my teacher, the teachers that I work with lately is that we have a whole generation of kids. You know, like, now that I've, in my district, I've been there and this will be my fifth year. And I've seen the progression where you have a whole bunch of kids who are really, really great at saying, you know, Miss So-and-so, I want fish crackers, please. But they can't tell you when they're hurt. They can't use real language of that. And they're not using the word, they're not using I in another context and they may not even have a concept of an i versus a you all right so and you know what i'm talking about and the listeners out there probably know what i'm talking about as well but going back to this ebp paradigm um you can if there's a number of studies for any number of approaches that can show great treatment effects but again it's the question that we're asking what are we really looking at what's the question and i'm just going to let you run with that (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah. I, I feel, you know, in my heart, I feel some real empathy for new clinicians these days. Um, because, um, those of us, um, like you and me who've been around long enough to be able to truly assess a child and their learning style, their learning strengths, their learning challenges, their sensory profiles, who know what questions to ask an OT, who know what questions to ask a parent in order to give our brains, that is, you know, the the seasoned clinician, the information that we need 
to pick and choose among all of the evidence-based practices and then some that are out there to tailor something that's truly, truly, truly for this child. You know, I, I, I really do have great empathy for the clinician who is just grappling with, what am I going to pick? Do I just pick, you know, one of the two dozen things that somebody handed me on a list that are all evidence-based practices? Do I just pick one of them? You know, do I, you know, and, and I really, I really appreciate the, um, the ASHA, um, uh, news feed, um, where clinicians, um, are asking those questions and they're saying, you know, I have this child with autism first time on my caseload. Do I go with something that's just for autism? And I think that's another big mm-hmm. part of this whole conundrum for a new clinician is like, oh, is this child so different from kids I've known before that I have to use something that's all about autism? You know, and now I've totally forgotten what your question was exactly. But <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think that um, in some ways, there's a part of our identity as SLPs that has been um, not by anybody's, you know, volition, but has been just over time kind of stripped away um, when it comes to autism. It's almost like, mm-hmm. you know, we, I remember, you know, between 20 years ago and 10 years ago that we, along with everybody else, the OTs, the PTs, everybody else, were told that um, we were irrelevant to this child. And, you know, I think nowadays, obviously, the the sensory motor issues are paramount um, in our collective conscience nowadays. And so hopefully, you know, all of us are welcomed members on teams. But in the process of losing our identity, we kind of lost track of what we could offer that is distinct to our profession. And so as you look at, as you say, this, you know, evidence-based practice versus this one versus this one, you know, what do we pick for a child? I think the, 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 the admonition, you know, at first do no harm is probably the big one. Yeah is that if we're going to assess a child's reaction to something, you know, I think that we now have permission to not see, you know, a child who's screaming and running away from us as a good thing. As, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, between 20 and 15 years ago, that's what was presumed was supposed to happen if you were doing the right thing with a child with autism, is they were supposed to hate it. Because we were teaching them to comply with us, the, you know, whoever we were, that we would demand compliance. But, you know, that was considered a good thing back in the old days. And the old days weren't all that long ago. Mm -hmm. So now I think with our eyes and ears as SLPs, we can look at what things are making a child happier, what things are are allowing a child to be part of a dyad with us. As you say, you know, if we take a certs kind of a model um, and we're looking at what creates a we, what creates, you know, us together in this um, endeavor. Um, and that probably is the place where, you know, we want to do no harm. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's a it's a good point. You know, and and just to back up, it's not that I'm not. You know, I, I I'm thinking back to episode eight with uh, Dr. Gregory Loff about non-speech motor exercises, and I want I'm a big believer in evidence-based practice. I think you know it, it's not just speech pathology. I think it's a big push in all the disciplines, related disciplines. But I think we have to ask smart questions, and I think there's no. It's not as simple as saying, uh, "Show me the randomized controlled trial," you know, for this approach. And if there's no, if there isn't one, then, it is, then there, you know, we have to discount it completely. It's more complex than that. And I, I, I still, I look at speech pathology, but not just speech pathology. A lot of fields. It's you know, we're still in infancy of really gathering good data and, and even just grappling with what I still think we're grappling with what autism is and and conceptualizing it. And you know, the DSM was you know, we're now in the DSM five and. Who knows what the next version is going to look like 10 years from now. It's, we're, it's evolving. And I think our knowledge is going to continue to evolve. And to say that we have all the answers or that we can only put our eggs in this basket or that basket is just, we're not there yet. Um, so good response. All right. So moving on, I just have a couple more questions for you today. But um, we're going to take kind of a left turn here. We talked a little bit about, before I turn the recorder on, um, about... Here at the Communication Development Center, you have new people starting, and you have people from different disciplines. It's not just master's level SLPs. You, you were talking about a, a gentleman who has a psychology degree. Um, I think you use SLPAs from time to time. And I was asking you about what the learning curve is like for not just uh, you know people coming into your center here, A, understanding and getting the NLA paradigm, and then B, and th th here's the bigger part, is being able to jump into a therapy session, or, or let's talk about from assessment to therapy, truly feeling comfortable with not just seeing it, but also when you're in a session with a kid, being able to do the tango with them, knowing what to say, knowing not what to say, because there are so many, in your book, you have a character, Dylan, who starts out at preschool, versus Bevan, an older kid, and they are night and day different, okay? And so... How long does it take someone to feel comfortable with this the whole wide array of kids who come here with different needs, with different gestalts, who may need more gestalts before, you know, what does that look like? Well, um, you know, I did know you were going to ask that question, and I did take a little mini survey to kind of look at how people would answer, because actually we've had this clinic now for, I think, 17 years, and you know, we've done some version of um, assessment with NLA and some various versions of of um, helping kids uh, go from gestalts to mitigations to generative self-generated language for a long, long time. So I've never seen anybody who didn't just move into it almost as if it was like, you know, a, a second glove. But I did take this little survey just to hear what people said and, and essentially try to figure out and ha ask them to figure out why it was so easy for them. And I think we know that, I think we know that for parents, they probably have the fastest learning curve because they've listened to a child, they can sometimes tell why a child is repeating, 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 repeating the same thing over and over again until finally somebody says, let's acknowledge that. You know, maybe it's somehow important. And then lo and behold, he stops. 
he doesn't say that anymore. And they say, oh, that was apparently meaningful. I have to just figure out, you know, why and what it meant. But for the people who work here in this clinic, first of all, it's it's all play-based and it's all sensory motor supported. So people who come here are of the mindset that we're not going to be sitting at a table with flashcards. They know that to begin with. So that's already kind of a, a self-selected group of people um, expecting that what a child says isn't all of what a child's behavior um, is that matters. And so if a child is, is laughing, you know, just vocal access, that's a good thing. So, so anybody who comes here knows that vocal access, regardless of whether there's language there or not, is a good thing. Knows that, you know, we're going to be looking at the whole body's development and not letting kids just run, 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 run without developing a core and an upper body. So we've got lots of climbing things. So, so everybody who comes here and we've hired as an SLPA or a communication partner, um, is aware that the physical piece is very important to the regulation, which is thus important to whatever the child is achieving developmentally. So the language is, you know, kind of like the top layer of what we do here. And so nobody needs to panic or nobody really panics about what the child is saying. You know, it's almost like, oh, if their body is happy and their body is moving and there's some intention with their body and they're engaged with us through, you know, the proximity of their body, even if it's not eye contact per se, but there's maybe the referencing with their eyes, then what they say is it's not irrelevant by any means, but at least there's something that says, oh, he said X when he was doing Y. I wonder why. I wonder why he was saying X. So rather than start with X and figure out what X means, we kind of know what X means because it's the, it's the language or the sound that went along with the Y, and I don't mean Y like W-H-Y, but the, as in X-Y-Z, with the Y behavior. And so we say, oh, when he's climbing up the slide, he says, race you to the top. Well, pretty easy to understand that one. But also when he's running out the door, he says, race you to the top. So we can tell that the same actual, you know, it's not really linguistic in the sense of self-generated, but we can tell that the same words mean at least two different things, one of which was fairly easy to read, pretty transparent. The other one wasn't necessarily. Or let's take a less transparent example. Um, he's on our big trampoline and he goes to uh, stop for a while and goes underneath in the dark space. And he says, um, uh, I can't judge very wrong. And you think, did he say something was wrong? And then you think, I don't know, but in my little language sample or on my voice recorder, I've got this written down, so I'm going to pay attention to that. And lo and behold, the next time he's just overwhelmed with something auditorily, he says, I didn't tell you, there's something wrong. And you think, oh, somebody said to him once, I can tell by your uh, face when there's something wrong. Mm. And so he's saying this, this um, delayed echolalia, that something wrong was the part we could hear a little bit, and we could think, oh, pay attention. So we're trying to pay attention 
to the circumstances, you know, almost first. And you might say, well, but that isn't the kind of situation we're going to have at school. And that isn't one that people are going to be having the luxury of, of, of seeing. And you're absolutely right. And so that's why uh, Jeff and I are going to do a presentation at ASHA <laughs> <laughs> to approach some of these questions. Because yeah. <laughs> you, the listening audience here, that's exactly what we collectively need to do next. Yeah, and that the, is yeah. figure out ways that we can be in constant communication with families and not have it be just the one moment that Jeff has a parent sitting in front of him when he can say, well, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. You know, but we, we really do need to be in, in regular partnership with families and have regular OT infusion into our, our, our sessions so that we mm-hmm. can all in a couple of years time present the next level at ASHA. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I, <laughs> it's a really good point. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be the one presenting, but, um, yeah, you know, so the more specific thing, here's the thing that I've been struggling with more is the responding, you know, every kid is different. And let me just give you one example. So one of the kids in my caseload at school, he, <laughs> I pull him out once a week and he takes a bucket of trains and he puts the uh, put the trains on the floor in, this, in our we have a sensory room, and he'll just do a bunch of lines from Thomas. Now he wants me around him. He'll say, "Mr. Jeff, you know, come sit." And so I come sit, and then everything from that moment, gestalt, gestalt, gestalt. Thomas comes to a screeching halt. A screeching stop. Yeah. So the teacher, she, she's going to listen to this. I'm sure she'll know exactly who and what I'm talking about because we talk about this all the time. Anyway. So here, you know, like, here's my question, you know, he's, he's doing that little, uh, you know, that lateral gazes, he's, uh, you know, lining up the trains, you've seen this before, you know what I'm talking about. And he's just going back and forth, he wants me close to him, but he's not necessarily inviting me to either repeat his gestalt or add my own. And so and I'm like, okay, what do I do? Do I interrupt his play? Do I add something? Do I just sort of like, repeat maybe a couple of words that he says? And, you know, it, it's not just him, but it's like, again, you know, how do I respond verbally to these kids? I'm, that's when I'm, that's that finer, that finesse that I'm still learning to do. Now, some kids, I actually find it's easier because it, it just makes more sense. It's more transparent. I'm like, that kid, I have a kid, I have a kid, he needs more gestalt. I talked to his mom, he's like, you know, doesn't, he doesn't really watch TV. Really? What does he do at home? He just kind of wanders from thing to thing. And he, he only has like maybe a 20 gestalt, you know, you know, he's not watching hours on our television. He's not repeating a lot of other kids say that like his kid needs more stuff. And lo and behold, we're, I'm finding success. I'm giving him some new gestalts and we're breaking those down. So I think we're getting some good success with him. But this other kid, you know, he's, he's he actually has some word isolations. Occasionally, some a couple of stage four utterances here and there. But he's still, you know, 70% stuck in stage one. And, you know, when he's sort of rolling those trains, like, you know, what do I do? How do I get into his world? What am I going to do? What am I not going to do? How, how long is he with you? Well, you know, I push into the classroom. So I'm doing some academic-like things with him. I do a speech group. But, but the only I have about a half hour once a week of just, you know, one-on-one time with him. And, and how much of that script is um, repeated each week? Oh, so that's that's the interesting thing is that I, I also find, let me just back up, is that 
the kids that I'm pulling for a half hour to do this type of just play-based therapy, they automatically go because it comes at the same time every week. And so just it probably happens here too. It's like when I come on Tuesdays at three o'clock, I know I'm going to see that person. I'm going to that room and, oh, I'm just going to pick up where I left. I pick up those toys because that, you know, we're very routine based. And so um, that's what I'm finding with the kids. Like he picks up the trains, he knows he goes to the room and that's what, and I, sometimes I try to gently put other toys in his way or, you know, other barriers or just something or maybe model something else to get him to do other things. But we're sort of stuck. And so the scripts are the same the, then? Yeah, I'm sorry. Just to back up, the scripts are mostly the same. And what I'll do is, like, you know, one of the things that I do do is I'll throw in an older gestalt, maybe a gestalt tea that was in style three months ago that I think could be applicable to this. So, for instance, this boy loves Thomas the Tank Engine these days, but he had this one Alvin and the Chipmunks line um, that he was doing just a whole bunch. And so there was like, you know, if I find an, an opportunity where I think it fits, I'll put that, I'll model that just to see, if he, you know, so. And how old is he? He is seven. Okay. Um, well, it's not that we don't have the same problems in our clinic. I mean, we do. Um, mm -hmm. Even with the amount of um, movement potential there is to get a kid, and I hate to use the word unstuck, but if a child is, um, let's just say, I guess, in a way, mentally limited to um, revisiting a particular if, if it's a movie or if it's situational, but if he's really kind of, you know, you, you kind of suspect that this is our right brain or a whole brain activity that doesn't have a whole lot of left brain linguistic, you know, um, extraction going on, except when he says, you know, sit close, Mr. Jeff, or whatever he says. But um, in our situation, you know, we do honor the child's lead, of course, but we also try to make sure that we don't get too sedentary because that, that you know, and I'm, I'm sorry we don't have better words for stuck, but that stuckedness, you know, we will preempt, try to preempt the stuckedness by, first of all, taking, if there's going to be um, like little toys, putting them on our big trampoline. So having a movable surface. So, you know, even if it's like one of the big inner tubes and, and have his lining up occur on top of the inner tube so that, you know, occasionally, you know, Thomas actually falls in, you know, Sodor Islands Lake. Mm -hmm. um, and then the new script picks up that you, Mr. Jeff, um, you know, formulates right there on the spot, you know, in the same kind of vein of the, 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 the gestalty vein, um, internationally. So like, you know, um, uh, Sir Topham Hatt, uh, came to the rescue, you know, oh, let's get Thomas out of the mud, crank, 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 mm -hmm. you know, trying in your best way to compete with um, the British accents that are going to be a lot better <laughs> than <laughs> yours. Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously being sedentary is one problem. Obviously, you know, hitting um, play in his mind and just going through the script is another problem. And you're right about the interruption, but sometimes, obviously, the interruption can, you know, just, you know, 
you know, not work at all Mm -hmm. and just, you know, interrupt whatever was the goodness of your close proximity and your obvious relationship. Um, But if something is, um, has gotten to the point of what we would call a default, like it's the easiest thing I can fall back on, you know, then it's not even so much about language development per se, as this is a language gestalt, but it's about, you know, what does my body do when it's under-regulated? Mm-hmm. It falls into a default pattern. And so preempting the default pattern, whether it's I want chips, please, by, you know, that's a tough one when it's a default because you don't want to wait for the child to request chips mm-hmm. because then you've just you've just let them practice it again and again and again, and it gets even more locked in. And just like the Thomas script, the more times he says it, the more times he's with it, you know, the more locked in and the, the, the greater the potential for it becoming a default, you know, for way, 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 way longer than he or anybody else would want. Um, so preempting it, you know, getting there first, like, like, you know, sometimes I'm not saying what would be good for this particular boy because I don't know him, but, but we, we do have certainly a couple of, of strong Thomas kids. And for one of them, you know, having, having it all set up ahead of time with missing track, Mm -hmm. you know, having some, I mean, this sounds like the, the kind of thing that, you know, SLPs have always, you know, the little, the little mini sabotage type of things. But, but if you're trying to break up something that is a a default, you just don't want the default to happen. And sometimes you can do it with the physicality of it. You know, something that, like I say, you know, we would use, I have a movable surface so, so that everybody falls in the, the, the lake or like you think about the potential of making your own movie, you know, mm-hmm. taking those trains and doing like a, a video model, if you will, of a story that you create. But it's one that has, you know, like multiple endings or it's one that only goes so far and it only goes until you get to the, you know, whatever. And then, you know, episode two starts and you can't wait for the next episode to occur. You know, that's a really good point because you made me think about one of the things that was successful with this boy and that we, um, we've done this a couple of times where I took the trains and put them down a ramp and I would say, let's go, Thomas, let's go, Percy. And then he looks at me and he goes, he says, let's go, Charlie. You know, he says that. And then I might have mixed it up and I've, I've done this a few times here and there where I use one of his uh, gestalts, how about how about Thomas? And then, of course, he'll put in, how about Percy? You know, and then one time he actually, this blew me, he goes, how about let's go, Aww. you know, salty. Aww. So I'm like, wow, that's awesome. You know? I remember some of those yeah. from the, the Dylan days. <laughs> the Dylan yeah. Days. All right. So well, you are going to say? So clearly you've solved this already. So Well, no, I haven't solved, but no, you, you, made, you made a good point. I think that good point thing is that try to really, you know, preempt that and it, I, I really think a lot of it is going is is front loading your sessions and thinking about what you want to do before they get into the room. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's uh, that was a very good point. All right. So before we wrap up for this session, I want to ask you about one of my older students or older clients. He's a guy I've seen since early intervention, and he's more of like your the Bevan character in your book. And he's 11 years old. And I'll, I'll boy, where to start with him? Let me just give you a quick rundown. He is a encyclopedia of Disney movies. He has watched a lot. And the thing that's amazing, amazing about this kid is that a lot of his speech is unintelligible when he's with his run on gestalts. But you can pull up a movie that he hasn't seen in maybe a year or two. So he might take Peter Pan, for instance. 
And this kid can go through every beat and he, you can turn the volume down and he just, he is on, on cue with every, you know, come on, Peter, let's go. And he's a you know, beautiful singing voice too, by the way. He hits these great notes. I think he's got a future in, as an opera singer, but that's, uh, that's another story. But okay, so here's a kid who's just got tons and tons of gestalt. I took about four, four, four language samples in October, okay? This kid is clearly parked in, in, in stage one land for roughly 70%. And this is across, so we had a language sample, two play-based, one him just doing chores around the house with his father following him around, and that was virtually all gestalt. We had one little routine of him at his school. This therapist was kind enough to uh, record um, him during a snack, and she had a little puppet trying to eat his food. Okay, so he, he comes up. He has these nice little, he has mitigations. He has some, a lot of word isolations, but this kid is clearly stuck in a stage one, and he has an encyclopedia that is huge. So, and one of his favorite things to do with me these days is he'll, um, I go to his house now, and we'll go into his basement. He has his own little iPad, and what he does is, you know, you're talking about uh, how VHS were, was, was such a, a great thing for kids, and they don't have that because they can go exactly, well, the one thing with the YouTube videos or his iPad is he can scrub, right? He can press that button, and he knows, he can generally find the points that he likes and go back and listen for his uh, favorite, you know, parts again. But what he loves to do with me is he just sort of like, I'll, we just did this on Friday. I take a little puppet, he presses play, and he'll say the line, he'll hit pause, and then he wants my puppet to say it, right? And so once in a while, what I, our therapy is sort of like this. We, I'll say a line, and then he'll go with for say another line. And once in a while, like every four or five hundreds, I just mix it up. I'll do something different, or I'll throw in a line from another movie that, again, matches the theme or the, the feeling over there. And sometimes he'll go, his thing is, excuse me. You know, it's like, you just did something wrong. Let's back up here. Excuse me. Sometimes he'll laugh and sometimes he'll actually address what I just did head on and we'll get a nice little exchange about that. But um, again, I just, I was wondering if you just talked to the challenge we have of a kid who's in stage one at the age of 11, who's got just a, an immense, <laughs> immense library, how we compete with that and how we continue to get this kid moving along. Oh boy. Well, and I will say you, you had likened him to Bevan to some degree. And, um, I think, you know, that I still see Bevan and that he's actually 20 years old now. And his favorite thing to do would be something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's not that he can't do all the other stuff. In fact, as his regulation over time has gotten better, 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 he is more willing, I'm going to say, to spend time with self-generated language. But I would say that his favorite, favorite, favorite thing to do would be to go back to those gestalts. And I'm thinking that if he could share that with someone the way you are sharing that, that that would be probably his very favorite thing that he would do. And I think that like you're suggesting, you know, a future in theater is probably something that your young man and my young man, you know, are moving towards, you know, and, and really don't want to give up. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I mean, if I had a gift like that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave it someplace yeah. parked in the back of my mind. I'm sure of that. Yeah. But I think the compromise that comes with with age, that is the the student, the client, and the metacognition that goes along with it, is 
what what you know almost like a cost benefit analysis what is what is the benefit to me bevan to be able to speak to you about some of the things that i really care about and because you marge are my like life advocate you know it behooves me to share with you some things that really 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 matter to me and i know you're not going to understand if i give you five lines from five movies and ask you to extrapolate so you know my communicative function then in using self-generated language is to talk to you and um so i i think that part of you know, what, and I don't know if your student is, is old enough to, you know, in a sense, be able to code switch, you know, almost like, okay, so for this five minutes, we're going to do X. And I, I probably wouldn't set it up any more stringently than I, than it sounds like you would. But with my, my buddy Bevan, you know, what we do is I pick him up from school and take him to OT. So we have 10 minutes in the car where he's basically wanting to tell me everything that's important in his life Mm -hmm. right now. Then when he gets to OT, he's usually very, very quiet um, because he's doing some listening therapy at the same time. But his OT and I are both listening very closely to things that might be rather new things that he will bring up because that, that often happens in that time. Then when we go back to school, then he's back in gestalt land because he's kind of getting himself revved up to be able to, in a sense, withstand some of the demands that he's going to have in his after school life. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but he's, he's, but, but, I, but I've gotten to the point where I know to listen incredibly closely to him at all times. Not that we don't as SLPs do that anyway, but I always know that even when he's doing lines from something or another, there's going to be a little ringer in there. He's going to throw in a mitigation that matters, but what matters, it seems to me is that he doesn't have to say it in this dry, dull, generative grammar way that everybody's always asking him to talk. You know, he's not going to, he's probably never, ever, as long as I will know him, and he's said that we're going to go to college together, so I have some future with him yet. But um, he's probably never going to say to me, I'm really feeling sad. He's probably never, ever, ever going to say that because it's too threatening to him to say that um, rather he's going to, he's going to couch it in ways that characters would say it from various movies. Mm-hmm. And I know that, I know that. And whereas, yes, it's, it's one of his goals. One of the goals we have for him is that he express his feelings more and more and more. We do recognize that the form that he uses to express those is going to be somewhat in an inverse relationship to how deeply it matters, mm. which is, that's a complete, that's not a complete answer to your question at all. Well, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I guess the, in a, in a larger sense, I, I, I sort of like, I, I given the, the, you know, that he's, my kid is parked so much in Gishnaut, and I don't know that he's, has the ability right now to code switch or to really, you know, he can, he'll kind of go, because he uses Gestalt very purposely and he, because he can mitigate and then use them purposely. Um, you know, for instance, when he throws my puppet across the room and he goes, and stay out, you know, <laughs> instead of get away, I don't want to see you. 
Um, you know, he goes there and then, you know, if he's, you know, he might say, uh, you know, just look at, look at hair. You know, he, he plays this uh, app called Toka Hair Salon. He likes him. You, know, you take a picture of yourself and, you know, look at, you know, look at the hair. You know, anyway, he, he is kind of all over the place, but because he's got that big library of gestalts and because he spent so much time, I guess, like, I guess what I wanted, um, you know, what is the prognosis in terms of prognosis? I'm going to use a medical term, but you know what? You know, I, I just I guess I'm looking like a. There's hope that we are going to continue down this path. Um, B. What would you know? Uh, and again, it's hard because you don't know him. But what would a a therapy? What 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 should I be looking at from a general sense as far as planning for him? Well, um, you know, first of all, I hope you stay with him forever because oh, I will. Oh, good as because long as mom. <laughs> Good, because I think that's part of the key. Yeah, is that the the long term relationship that says I know where he's been, I can see where he is now, I know a little bit. You're probably getting a bit of a glimmer as to where he wants to go mm. next. And with my buddy, my long term buddy, you know, I didn't have that glimmer when he was eleven or twelve or thirteen or fourteen or fifteen. When he was fifteen, I could start to see that he's going to go back to stories. That's where that's where his heart lives and that's where he's going to go back to. And I was I was afraid. I mean, I was sitting there just like you are today saying, you know, who is going to believe me um that he is going to be able to code switch. I mean, I didn't know that for an absolute fact because he had so many huge auditory sensitivities that he didn't want to hang out in a world where people just talked. He wanted to have a world where there was music and when where there was drama and intonation and beauty and it's more interesting. Oh my goodness, yes. And in a voice like mine right now on this podcast you know, horrible to no his way. ears, yeah. horrible to his ears. Yeah. And I, I mean, when I think about how many kids who we know who, you know, really live in a right brain, whole brain sense with music and, and lightness and, and, and I think about the harshness of the voice that I'm using right now and how awful that is. I mean, I'm, I'm always very, very careful to use a very quiet voice with him and to only use my voice when it matters and never to use it when it doesn't matter mm. pretty much. Um, so at age 15, I wasn't quite sure. I wasn't quite sure he was going to be able to code switch, but now I absolutely know he can and he does. And his, in his self-generated language, I mean, you, you know, from the painstaking chapters about his language samples in the book, I wanted to just include enough in that book that somebody who's grappling with this very thing with their 11-year-old or 15-year-old is going to say, yeah, it's still all over the map. Yeah, 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 it's still over the map. And if I were to write a sequel to that book, I could have much better clarity about where certain kinds of utterances ended up. And so now as I sit and listen to him, you know, the notes that I take are on the generative language that he uses because the rest of it I can I can tell when he's mitigating for my benefit you know he'll say something that would be like this flowing gestalt mitigated for my benefit and then I'm to my job is to recognize the mitigation not call huge attention to it but to recognize it because it's 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 our relationship 
And I'm so glad you're going to be with this boy forever. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, the last thing I want to say about that is talking about code switching. Just Friday when I saw him um, two days ago, uh, three days ago, yeah, uh, I was talking to his mom and she said to me, uh, we were talking to his ABA therapist recently and she wants to know, or what do you think, Jeff, about this idea that she, one of the goals is she wants him to be able to stay, um, it's a pragmatic goal on a specific topic without going into gestalts. All right. And she said the idea is that she wants to put a bracelet on him. And this is going to be our signal that for the next five minutes, we're going to be talking about X and not about Peter Pan or whatever. And I, I, you know, we kind of talked through this and I said, you know what, to be quite honest, in one sense, I'm not completely against it because he is at an age right now, you know, we're talking about code switching, this idea that maybe we can, I, I said, as long as, as long as a, we don't, it's a very limited part of his day that he's not, I mean, cause I said, I said to him, I go, <laughs> I made this joke. I said, if you can find me any therapist who can stamp out the gestalts a hundred percent of the, you know, the day or even 50% of the day, I will pay you a million dollars. I go, if it takes me the rest of my life, <laughs> you will not ever get there. You, it just, it will not happen. But beyond that, I said, you know what? My initial thing, like, you know what? I'm not entirely against it. If as long as, um, we honor the fact that this is who he is and that most of the time we can, but to introduce it in small chunks, I didn't think it was such a bad idea. And that he gets something out of it. Yes. And I think that's what's, what's been good about Bevan is that, um, you know, he does get something out of it. I mean, it, it would be nice if that five minutes was with you or mm-hmm. someone who really cared about what things he was saying, that it wasn't just some kind of drill or something like that. Yeah. But, um, but that's been the part for Bevan is that, <laughs> you know, I'll just imitate what he said on Friday night. Um, he, okay, so there's, there's various things that he does depending on the effect that the language has. And so, you know, you think about what, you know, we have this goal because most of us SLP types are pretty left brain and we have this goal in our mind um, to have everybody sound like, you know, me, um, which is incredibly dull and boring and really is, you know, lacking in musicality tremendously. So what Bevan does is he, he raises the bar for me and teaches me how I could be more melodic, more open-minded, um, more, um, accepting of the kinds of language that, um, that is out there. And so as I'm thinking about, um, your client, um, Jeff, it makes me wonder about kind of a role play kind Mm -hmm. of a thing. That is that if you guys, um, had the bracelet on for five minutes and you were doing some kind of a role play, that was, you know, the thing that he was going to do to show off for his, his family or his ABA therapist, because I'm afraid that somebody who doesn't really um, know the depths of his uh, creativity might get him to say stupid stuff like, the girl is running, mm. you know, and we would want to uh, make our um, self-generated language just as interesting as possible. So um, on Friday, um, there were various things that my buddy said that were 
um, self-generated that I loved, but I, I knew though that I was supposed to react to them in kind of a way that wasn't too pressureful, that certainly didn't applaud, that didn't say, oh, that was good, you know, say it again or say something else or, you know, nothing deadly dull like that. But I was supposed to accept it as part of, you know, a shared, um, almost secret. And so some of the things he said to me, um, he finds the dark very scary. Um, so um, he says a line um, from um, a, a Flintstones movie that is, I'll, I'll see to it that it's quiet, dear. But he mitigates it as he's walking out the door of the clinic. And this is at night, so it's dark in the hallway, down the hall. And he says, I'll see to it that it's safe. So with all of the bravado of um, his uh, budding adult self, he's taking care of me. So he walks out the door. And, and he had said to me the week before, um, I'll take care of you. And that was something that I've never heard him say anything like that, where it's almost like the, the roles between us are shifting a little bit. And then when he came back, he said, I'm back. Voila. So he, again, he had taken the, you know, this was unusual for him to take a little gestalt like a voila, mm -hmm. but he knew exactly how to use it. And then um, when it was time for him to go that night, he said to me, I got to go. Um, which was, again, a very assertive statement on his part, you know, that it wasn't like, oh, it's time, oh, I have to leave, you know, it's too bad. But it was like, I got to go, I have my life, you know, kind of. Mm -hmm. um, and then he said to me, um, um, remember, always. So it was a reminder to me that we are friends for life. And he had once said to me that I was going to go to college with him. So, I mean, it was like, I will dare to be brave. I will dare to say goodbye to you as long as you know that that doesn't sever our relationship. Mm. Um, very sweet. <laughs> very sweet. And so I said to him, I think you're lovely. And he said to me, I think you're fabulous, which of course I knew was a gestalt, but I mean, the well-selected gestalt has mm. really no equal. You know, okay, so the last question I want to end there that, I think you are fabulous. Are we, you know, this is an NLA scoring question, I guess. When you look at a, I'm just gonna make a, a quick little shift there. I think that was a very lovely statement, but even our, even the uh, parents, we may not always know every single gestalt versus what was mitigated or self-generated. But I, what I've been doing when scoring, especially with this, with this boy who's got an encyclopedic knowledge, is that it's a one if the intonation pattern shows that. Does that make sense? Exactly. And that's, okay. that's what exactly what I was going to say, because now we're at the stage with my buddy where his gestalts are, are sound just like his self-generated grammar, mm. except for the fact that um, the gestalt ones have a gestalty kind of a voice. Yes. So they, they, they clearly come from elsewhere. Um, if they sound like um, and, and it can be, it can be things that are dramatic and came from Disney or Thomas, but it can also be things that he learned from, you know, Pex or something else, mm, you know? Yeah. So we have, there's one little girl who will say, I want a push please. 
and we know, of course, that that how that how that came to be, and that it's a gestalt, but that she's mitigated. But she also says sometimes when her guard is down and nobody's keeping track of you know what she's doing language wise, she'll say, "I want to push." Mm. Yeah. And so then we know. And do you um, score that differently? That well, sense, yes, yes. Okay. Yes, because this I want a push, please, is the kind of thing that we, you know, it's so default. Yeah. And I mean, yes, it's gestalt too, but it's so default. It's so like yeah. I'm supposed to say something, mm-hmm. I'm going to say that. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, and actually just using kind of the NLA scoring protocol, the I want a push, please, we don't score at all. Yeah, previously taught. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, I, I mostly just cringe. <laughs> and um, so when she says, I want to push or I want to, you know, then we think, oh, yes, that's her. And that is her, her generative language level. But these other kinds of things have been so ingrained in her. She's not stuck in the language mm. of those other uh, gestalts, but she's stuck in kind of the, um, the interactive protocol that says, when I want something, I need to this ask for do. it. So let me just ask you real quick then. All right, so someone who's been taught, because I have a student like this, who's been taught the I want X, and he's got the sing-song voice every time he asks for it. Uh, what happens, because this boy, the one thing he is really good at doing is plugging in that formula. I want chips. I want Elmo. I want, and always in that same gestalt, the way I've been taught voice. So how would you score a previously taught gestalt, but he's able to then put in, fill in the blank? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it depends. I mean, there's, there's nobody who cares what the score is in a sense, but you. Yes. And so if it's, if, if, if an individual has no other language, let's just say, besides, um, previously taught phrases and this particular little girl I was mentioning almost doesn't, um, because she's so eager to please people that she perceives anything that anybody um, has as an as a goal as an absolute expectation, and so she almost doesn't have other language except when her guard is down mm-hmm. and she's saying something almost under her breath because it's never been the kind of thing that's been rewarded by anybody ever, mm-hmm. and so it doesn't it doesn't get much airtime, but. Um, I certainly, if we're, if we're looking at her progress and I'm trying to chart her progress, which of course we're doing every time she uses the same old, same old, I will just, you know, put a little tick mark and say, okay, there was one of those. Cause she'll do exactly what you're saying. She'll use, I want to X please. Um, I, I, I don't ever put them on a, um, a, an actual scoring form because b- mostly that's what we're trying to um, preempt mm. and not give her a chance to practice yet again. I mean, they're mm. way, 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 way over practiced. So, um, um, yeah, but if a child really has no other language but that and you're wanting to make a case to, um, to someone, a parent, that the child is able 
to mitigate, and this is your evidence that the child is able to mitigate, then of course, you know, there would be some value in keeping track of all of that. It doesn't really lend itself to NLA in a general sense because um, you're hoping, of course, that the child has more um, language input than mm. than two phrases. But it, in this little girl's case, basically, that's that was it. Yeah, she had the "I want X, please," and she had she had "I need help, please," and that one she's never mitigated. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's say the last. Here's the last thing I want to ask you, and sort of switching back to. Um, the Disney movies and the Barney videos and Thomas the Tank Engine. Do you find that you have to, you know, let's say you have a new uh, client at the CDC here and mom tells you maybe there's a quirky little video that you've never seen before, all right? And you know going into it that there's a particular half hour episode that he watches nonstop, but you're really not familiar with the characters, you know, how much homework do you have to do as far as watching these kids to really know their gestalts and to know the characters? Um, because, you know, in, in the case of my 11-year-old that I work with, who has an encyclopedic knowledge, one of the, here, I'll share a strategy that, um, that I've used with folk, uh, that I've used with this, with this boy, is that, okay, so let's say I know that he's really into uh, the movie Cars, or, you know, it doesn't matter, Peter Pan. I try to find online, see if I can find a script of that movie. Right. Now, it's not, and so I've had some mixed success. I found it some scripts, yes, some scripts, no. I then put it into a, you know, I copy it, basically put it into a Dropbox folder. So I have it mm -hmm. online. It's on my iPad. I bring my iPad with me to therapy, and I, have, I now have the script next to me. As soon as he says a gestalt, when, and I recognize some words, but I don't know exactly where it is. You know, some of these, I have kids my, of my own, so I know some of these movies very well, and I can pick out really quick Frozen. I know exactly the scene. I'm going right to it. Some of them I don't. So what I do is I use a little find thing. I'll type in a few words and boom, it, I get mm -hmm. right to the script. And I find that really helps me because there's no way I have the time or the, let's face it, the interest <laughs> to look at every single one of these. But I, I'm just wondering, how much homework do you have to do? Well, actually, we do something very similar to that. I mean, we try, <clears throat> like say a kid had been in Blue's Clues forever and his family just absolutely didn't want him to go back to it. Ever, ever, mm -hmm. ever. And so we, we try to not have any inadvertent references to Blue's Clues. But if this boy wants to, I mean, he's, he's really starting to sing now. So he's, he's moving on to some other things. And he wants to reference, he, he'd really like to go back to the movie. But we'll, we'll do the same thing. So we'll go back to like just a playlist of songs and just pull up a particular song that's going to be very satisfying to him. Um, but not necessarily getting back into the old kind of scriptedness that he's emerged from. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not exactly what you're asking about. You're asking about somebody who's really into the script, but we do the same thing. You do? Okay. Yeah, we do exactly the same thing. We just get the little YouTube clips, and sometimes you find you know, a situation where a child is trying to reenact a particular scene mm -hmm. that doesn't even have words. Yeah. And that happened one time where, you know, this boy just kept repeating this one action. Mm -hmm. And we thought, what is going on? So, but we knew kind of what, what the, the theme was. So we went and found it on The Impossibles, I think, mm -hmm. and, and found the exact scene that he was trying to enact. And it didn't have any words. So that was a nice one. You mean The Incredibles? 
Yeah. That, okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it had something to do with, I can't remember what this, yeah. it was some escape kind of thing. And mm. so then we were able to put words in a scene that didn't have words, but, yeah. but so I'm, I'm just telling my own little stories to say, yes, we do exactly the, you same, do the thing. same thing. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Well, I think this is a good place to stop. Uh, we've gone, uh, Wow, over an, an hour and a half almost. So I want to thank you again so much for hosting me today, having me up here in Madison. I certainly enjoyed it. I learned more every time I have a, an exchange with you. Well, and, what's so fun today is I get to hear your stories. And I mean, it really yeah. becomes, like your podcast says, it's really a conversation. And, you know, maybe we should end with one little plug to people who are listening. Definitely. Is, um, you know, we should broaden this conversation. Mm-hmm. And if there are ways that people can think of to broaden the conversation, I know that Jeff and I realized that email was a little bit difficult, you know, and maybe like you're suggesting with YouTube or uh, with Dropbox or something, maybe that would be a way we could we could share. And collaborate. Yeah. If any of you, if any listener has an idea of how to you know, broaden this conversation, the ideas of opening some new channels, let us know. Um, there'll be links for on this show to uh, Marge's website, her, uh, her, her work, and as well as to me. So please do not feel shy. Let us know what you're thinking. Give us some of your stories, and uh, thank you. Mm, thank you, Jeff. All right. Well, that about wraps up our conversation with Marge Blanc today. Um, I hope you enjoyed the questions that I asked. I hope I answered some of the questions that concerns that you have as a therapist or parent. Uh, please do contact myself or Marge about any questions and comments. And especially if you have uh, anything you wish to add, we want to try and see if we can find some common threads in our experiences to help our kids ultimately develop natural language. So I will leave it at that. Thank you so much again for listening. I'll see you next time.